0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, as the U.S. presidential election shifts into the major party convention phase, the question arises how politically polarized are we? As this talk details, while our political discourse may not have reached historical depths of incivility, sometimes it sure feels that way, and statistically, Both politicians and voters are more polarized now than ever before. Dr. Cornell Clayton directs the Thomas S. Foley Institute of Public Policy and Public Service at Washington State University. Dr. Travis Ridout is a Thomas S. Foley Distinguished Professor of Government and Public Policy at WSU. They joined KUOW's Ross Reynolds in a Humanities Washington Think and Drink discussion at Naked City Brewery on July 12th. Thanks to Zaki Barak Hamid for our recording. Here, KUOW's Ross Reynolds introduces the program.
1: We, our topic tonight, American Rage, Division and Anger in American Politics. How rageful are you? Like, not that much, a lot? Can I get a show of hands here? Okay, good. We're not going to have to break up any fights, it looks like. But it, this, is, this is a political year for the history books, as all are, but even more so with the nature of the two candidacies in both of the major parties. But politics is a context sport, after all, and outrage is a rhetorical tool that politics use for their own ends. But is there something different about this year than we've seen in previous years? That's what we're gonna be discussing, and we're gonna to try to outline what it means to be polarized and how much polarization is perhaps too much. And we have a great couple of panelists here to talk about this with you. They've done this once before, so they've got their routine down. <laughs> Uh, We're going to hear kind of, first of all, sort of a contextualization of what we're seeing this year. As you're all well aware, it's not as though this is the first time there's been a lot of rage and polarization in American politics. And Cornell Clayton, who's director of the Thomas S. Foley Institute at WSU and co-editor of Civility and Democracy in America, will be doing that contextualization for us. And then the way this comes out most prominently is in political ads, and ads is where the rage really comes out. And we're going to be hearing from Thomas Ridout, WSU professor and co-author of The Persuasive Power of Campaign Advertising about campaign ads and how rage is used in those. So we're going to hear from both of them. I'm going to have some questions, and I'm sure you'll have some of your own. So let's start with Cornell. Go ahead.
2: Thanks, Ross. Um, So uh, I suppose what we all agree about is we're surrounded by incivility in our politics. From members of Congress who yell out, you lie to the president during his speech, to radio talk show hosts who call young ladies sluts because they disagree over health care policy, to people who show up at political rallies armed with guns, incivility and rage seems to be all around our politics today. How many, just by show of hands, think that it's our civil discourse has gotten to a new low point? Sorry. For me, just for the other side. Okay. Can you hear me now? Better. Have gotten to a new low point, and it's actually a threat to our democracy. Most of you, okay. So you're not alone. However, what I want to do first of all is talk a little bit about uh, incivility in the history of American politics. And then I want to talk a little bit about the nature of political polariz- polarization today, why we are seeing an uptick in incivility again. So incivility is not new. Uh, a lot of people mythologize about a past in American politics, sort of this halcyon period when we seem to be more civil, kinder, gentler to each other. And in reality, that period never really existed. In fact, if you go back to uh, the founding period, a time we often mythologize, we think about our founding fathers as, as, as almost we venerate them. We think of them almost in uh, in reverential terms. And yet, the election of 1800 was a, the meanest, most nasty election in all of American history. Uh, typical were cartoons like this. This was uh, depicting Thomas Jefferson in the embrace of Satan, pulling down the pillars of good government. That's a very suggestive embrace, which was not by accident you also notice you know, a bottle of wine down there. His, his uh, critics accused him of being a drunkard because he had a winery. Uh, very nasty, ugly campaign. In fact, it ends in political violence. Two of the towering political figures of our day. It, it became so nasty and personal, they have a duel. And Alexander Hamilton is killed by Aaron Burr, of course. Uh, the 1820s, another period of deep division in our politics and nastiness. Uh, Andrew Jackson was often called by his political opponents Andrew Jackass or Andrew Dumbass, In fact, so often, he eventually adopted that moniker himself, which is why, to this day, the Democratic Party is represented by the donkey. (laughs) Build up to the Civil War, another period of deep division, violence, and anger in our politics. The most infamous uh, uh, event to occur in the U.S. Senate occurred during this period. Preston Brooks became so enraged at a uh, a speech that Charles Sumner gave against the Anti-Slave Act that he took to the floor and beat him unconscious with a cane took several weeks for Charles Sumner to recover. Not only was Preston uh, Preston Brooks not uh, chastised or or sanctioned by Congress for this event, he was actually lionized in the South for standing up for Southern honor. Abraham Lincoln, of course, was the target of the most venomous attacks both in the South and by the Copperhead Press in the North. Of course, he was assassinated as well. 1890s, another period of deep, deep division, anger in our politics. Uh, William Jennings Bryant... (laughs) I'll try to get it close. Uh, William Jennings Bryant was often depicted as a zealot, a religious fanatic. Uh, This is a period that begins with things like the Haymarket Riot where you have workers uh, shot and killed because they're protesting for workers' rights. It ends again in assassination of William McKinley in 1901. 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt was often attacked. Uh, He was called every name in the book, everything from a fascist to a socialist to a uh, communist, to a dictator. Uh, today's bombastic radio talk show hosts had their forerunner Father Charles Coughlin, who had a weekly radio broadcast. He would often inveigh against the president, call him a traitor to our country, oftentimes used anti-Semitic slurs to attack the, Roosevelt and his administration. And of course, many of us in this room remember the 1960s. It begins with the incivility and the violence shown to peaceful civil rights protesters in the South. It ends with the violence uh, anti-war protests in places like Kent State where protesters are shot. The 1968 Democratic Convention breaks out in riots. People are killed there by Mayor Daley's police. And, of course, we have the assassination of three of our towering political figures of that decade as well, John Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. So this is not new, what we're experiencing today. And, in fact, in comparison, we look pretty tame to some of these earlier periods. That's not to say that this is the norm of our politics either. Each of these periods I've just discussed are periods that political scientists talk about as critical election periods or critical junctures in the development of American politics and American democracy. Each of these are periods when you see major transformations taking place in American society, oftentimes major social movements. You have the enfranchisement of new voters. So during the Jacksonian period, it was people who didn't own property. During the Civil War, it was the newly freed slaves. In the 1890s and 1920s, it was the uh, women who gained the right to vote. In the 1960s, of course, it was the modern civil rights movement and the full inclusion of women and minorities in American uh, uh, democracy and American public life. These are periods when our country is so deeply divided that we are contesting the very terms of citizenship. What does it mean to be in an American? So let me talk a little bit about the nature of our division today. Here's what we know as a fact. Our political elites, our elected elites, are more polarized today than any time since we've had these two particular political parties. Any time since the 1870s. How do I know that? Well, political scientists don't have a lot to do. And so a group of them actually went back and analyzed every single roll call vote ever cast in the U.S. Congress. And on the basis of those roll call votes, they can place every single member of Congress on a continuum of liberal to conservative so you can go back and look at any member of Congress who's ever served, and you can see where their voting record would place them on this continuum of being liberal or conservative. So this is the continuum with a negative one being a perfect liberal score, a positive one being a perfect, or, uh, perfect conservative score. And then they simply take the mean Democratic member and the mean Republican member of the House or the Senate, and they track them. So this is the mean voting record of the, the mean Democrat... In, in the House of Representatives from 1944 through 2010. And the top is the mean Republican member of the House, their voting record. And you'll note that the Republicans have always voted consistently more conservative than the Democrats. But what I want you to notice is what happens along about the late 1970s and early 1980s. That gap begins to widen. In fact, it's twice as wide today as it was in 1980. And what that means is we are twice as polarized as in the 1980s. And there another way of saying the same thing our members of Congress are twice as less likely to vote across partisan lines, Democrats to vote with Republicans and Republicans to vote with Democrats, as they were back in 1980. Now, if you simply measure the distance between the mean Democrat and the mean Republican, you get what we call the polarization index for the House or the Senate. You can do it for both chambers. That's what the second chart does over here. So the blue line is the polarization index for the Senate. The red line is the polarization index for the House. This chart goes from 1879 through 2013. And you can see both the House and the Senate are more polarized than they've ever been since we've had these two particular political parties. Our elites are further apart from each other than they've ever been before. Now, not only are we polarized in terms of our political elite, and and I'll I'll just say this uh, real briefly, Um, the data about whether Americans themselves are just as polarized as, as the political elite is much Uh, more difficult, there's a lot more debate about that but here's what we know for certain Americans, much like our political elites, have also become sorted into ideologically coherent tribal-like parties now, what do I mean by that, ideological sorting so um, if I said to you today, or if I asked you the question are Democrats liberal and are Republicans conservative you would all look at me like, of course (laughs) everyone knows that but if I ask you that same question back in the 1960s, your answers would have been very different. And the reason is, is because back in the 1960s, our parties were not ideologically monolithic. You had liberal Democrats, but you also had a large number of very conservative Democrats, primarily in the South. We called them the Dixiecrats, the Southern Conservative Democrats. You also had conservative Republicans, but you also had very liberal Republicans. We called them the Rockefeller Republicans found primarily in the Northeast, Now, this is the exact same data that voting, uh, roll call voting data gathered uh, by analyzing roll call votes in Congress. It simply arranges it into these density bar graphs. So this is the same ideological continuum with negative one being uh, liberal, positive one being conservative, and each of these bars represents how many members of the House voted along that particular conservative dimension. So if you look at the blue bars, these are Democratic members of the House, and about 42 of them had a voting record that would place him about point negative three or negative four in terms of the ideological continuum. This is the House of Representatives in 1961 to 1962. Here's the House of Representatives, the last completed uh, Congress, 2011 to 2013. Now note something about the difference in these two graphs. First of all, note that the base of the two parties have become much more narrow. They're not as broad as they used to be. What this tells us is that the members of the party are much more ideologically like each other. They become more homogenous in terms of their ideological outlooks. Both parties have pulled some way, part, away from the center. The Republicans have moved further from the center than Democrats. We call that asymmetrical polarization, but they both moved away from the center. What I really want to call your attention to is this right here, this bit of overlap. Those blue bars there were Democrats who voted more conservatively than some Republicans. Those were the Dixiecrats. The red bars there were Republicans who voted more liberally than Democrats. They were the Rockefeller Republicans. Look what you got here. Zero. Zero overlap. There's not a single Republican in the House today who votes more liberally than any of the Democrats, and not a single Democratic member of the House today who votes more conservatively than any of the Republicans. We've become ideologically tribal-like parties. Now, why is that so important? I'll just point out, this is also the case for the vast majority of Americans. So this is simply the correlation between whether you identify yourself as a Democrat or a Republican and whether you identify yourself as a conservative or a liberal. If you went back to the 1970s, the correlation between the two was only about 0.3. It didn't explain very much. We couldn't tell whether you were liberal or conservative based upon your partisan identification. Today, that correlation is about 7.75. It's extremely strong. If all I know about you is which party you identify with, I can tell you an awful lot about the way you vote, the way you think about policy issues. So why is that important? So this leads to, when you get these ideologically sorted parties, tribal-like parties, it affects the way we think about each other. In political science, we call this affect of polarization. How do you feel about each other? So this is data from the National Election Survey, which is the oldest, largest survey of American political attitudes. They do a, a number of what they call thermometer questions. They simply say on a scale of 0 to 100, with 0 being very negative, 100 being very positive, how do you feel about blank? And They put different things in the blank. gonna be how do you feel about Barack Obama, how do you feel about Republicans in Congress, how do you feel about the leaders of uh, North Korea? How do you feel about cockroaches? They had that actually as a test question once. How do you feel about members of your immediate family? All right. So this is is the thermometer questions with respect to partisanship. How do you feel about the political parties? The top two lines is how Americans feel about their own party. How do Republicans feel about the Republican Party? Democrats feel about the Democratic Party? And you note it's between 70 and 80 points on a 100-point scale. That's pretty warm and fuzzy. We like our own party. In fact, that is stronger than how do you feel about your immediate family, which is closer to about 70, which makes sense because you can choose your party, you can't choose the members of your immediate family. But we like our parties better than we like members of our immediate family. The bottom two lines, those represent how do you feel about the other party. How do Democrats feel about Republicans and Republicans feel about Democrats? Now, this is the Carter years, back in the 1970s. Notice back then, it's not that we liked the other party. We always liked our party better than the other party. They scored about 45 on a 100-point scale. If they scored a 50, that would be the indifference point. It's not that we liked the other party, but we didn't hate the other party. We were indifferent towards it. Today, 18 points on a 100-point scale. We loathe the other party. Cockroaches scored higher than how we feel about the other party. That's what we mean by affective polarization. This is from the Pew survey. This simply asks, do you think the policies of the other party are so misguided that they are a threat to the nation's well-being? 27% of all Democrats think that of the Republican Party. 36% of all Republicans think that of the Democratic Party. If you break it down to Democrats who are consistently liberal in their views, 50% of them think the Republican Party is a threat to the nation's well-being. Republicans who are consistently conservative, 66%, fully two-thirds of them think the Democratic Party is a threat to the nation's well-being. We distrust each other. We see each other as a threat. That's what happens when you get sorted in these ideologically tribal-like parties. Now, one final uh, aspect of our polarization today, and I'll let Travis talk. Not only are we polarized, not only are we sorted in these tribal-like parties, we are extremely closely divided as an electorate, and we've been more closely divided for a longer period of time than any point in American history. So this is simply the popular vote margin in presidential elections over the last century. This goes all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, to Barack Obama's last two elections. Just note, for the first three-fourths of the century, it wasn't all unusual for presidential elections to be decided by 10, 15, 20, 25 percentage points, landslide elections. Look what's happened over the last two decades. Not a single election has been won by more than eight percentage points. Most of them are extremely close, and in fact, in 2000, we had our first election in over a century where the president who won the popular vote did not win in the electoral college. Similar data, this is simply more of it. Francis Lee went back, she calculated every single vote cast for every federal office, for the presidency, for the House, and for the Senate, and then she simply tallied up how many votes were cast for Republican candidates, how many votes cast for Democratic candidates, and calculated the difference between the two, and then aggregated them by decades. So each of these bars is a decade's worth of voting for all federal offices. The red bars are decades dominated by Republicans, so back in the 1860s, Republicans got about 22 percentage more points, votes, than Democratic candidates during that decade. These purple bars right here, those are decades where the difference in all the votes cast between Democrats and Republicans was less than two percentage points. The last three decades, the only other time we had this was in the 1880s. We might want to talk about that a little bit later. What does that lead to? Very closely contested elections, Institutional instability. This is simply the the three electoral institutions in the federal government, the presidency, the House, and the Senate, after each election, both midterms and general elections since 1980, and which party controlled that institution after the election? R's for Republicans and D's for Democrats. All I want you to know is that there is no pattern there. No party controls all three institutions for an extended period of time or even controls a single institution for an extended period of time. So now I want you to think about this. We are deeply polarized. We're sorted into these ideological tribal-like parties. And then we put Democrats in charge of the White House and Republicans in charge of Congress or vice versa. And we expect them to cooperate and pass public policy. It's not going to happen. And that's what the frustration is Americans feel. That's the policy of brinksmanship and gridlock. That's why they can't pass major policy issues. So I'll end with this. This is the recipe for why people become uh, angry about our politics and passionate about our politics. When we're deeply divided, we're polarized, we are closely divided, there's a lot at stake in our politics. People become much more passionate when there's a lot at stake. I just want you to think about the two of our previous elections, the election of 2000. Out of the 120 million plus votes that were cast, if 4,000 votes had gone the other way in Florida, George Bush would not have become president. And if George Bush hadn't become president, we would not have gone into Iraq and had the Iraq War. Now jump ahead to 2008. If 1,000 or 2,000 votes in a handful of states that narrowly elected Democratic senators had gone the other way, the Democrats would not have had 60 votes in the Senate to pass the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare Act. We wouldn't have had that law. Now... My point is that uh, the Iraq War or Obamacare or good or bad policy, we probably all have views about that. We can debate that. These are major policy transformations that will shape our country for generations, and they're being decided by a handful of votes. That's why people are passionate. When they become passionate, they become uncivil and sometimes angry. Sometimes that's just the normal give and take of democracy. Democracy involves conflict, conflict sparks emotion and passion. So I'll stop there.
1: For, uh, one question the for you, Cornell. before we, we get on to the next presentation. Yeah. A chicken and egg question. Are politicians, is this polarization, politicians responding to the electorate's passions, or is it the other way around? Uh, is, that, is it driving a wedge in the public because the politicians are so polarizing?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question, and uh, really smart political scientists have been working on this and they come up with different answers. I, um, I think most political scientists now, looking at the data, would argue that, in fact, um, elite polarization sends off cues to the public, and the public respond to those cues by sorting themselves into the appropriate political party. So the American public themselves, we're not becoming necessarily more extreme in our policy views. If you look at our policy views, on even major issues like abortion, they've remained remarkably stable over the last 40 to 50 years. But what's happened is if you have liberal views, you have migrated in the Democratic Party, and if you have conservative views, you have migrated in the Republican Party. And so that, it's that sorting that's taken place, and that's being driven, most political scientists think, by, by the cues given off by polarized
3: elites, by our elected officials. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. Travis Ridout is going to talk to us a little bit more about advertising and the polarization we're seeing.
3: All right. So I want to make, I guess, a radical argument, which is there's actually a lot less incivility in politics than you might think. Um, I study political advertising. I love watching political ads perhaps a bit too much. And so one of my assignments before doing this event was to find some political ads that illustrated incivility. Now, I found some, and I'm going to show them to you, but actually it was kind of a hard task because most of the political rhetoric we see is not all that incivil. In fact, it's quite boring to listen to. But, but let me show you the fun stuff. So um, can we start with a Jack Conway ad from Kentucky? I'm Jack Conway. I approve this message.
4: Why was Rand Paul a member of a secret society that called the Holy Bible a hoax that was banned for mocking Christianity and Christ?
3: Why did Rand Paul once tie a
4: woman up, tell her to bow down before a false idol and say his God was Aqua Buddha? Why does Rand Paul now want to end all federal faith-based initiatives
2: and even end the deduction for religious charities? Why are there so many questions about Rand Paul? <laughs>
5: Um, so why? <laughs>
3: why? I, good question. Uh, could we see the Elizabeth Dole ad as well, which also touches on this theme of religion? I'm Elizabeth
1: Dole, and I approve this message. A leader of the Godless Americans pack
0: recently held a secret fundraiser in Kay Hagan's honor. There
6: is no God to rely on. There was no Jesus.
0: Taking under God out
2: of the Pledge of Allegiance, you're down with that. We're down with that. in God we trust, you're going to whip that off the money? Yeah, we would.
1: Godless Americans and Kay Hagan. She hid from cameras, took godless money. What did Hagan promise in return?
2: There is no God.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, let, let's watch the NRA ad now.
4: President's kids more important than yours. Then why is he skeptical about putting armed security in our schools when his kids are protected by armed guards at their school? Mr. Obama demands the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes. But he's just another elitist hypocrite
2: when it comes to a fair share of security. Protection for their kids, and
3: gun-free zones for ourselves. Um, could we see the Republicans and Sally ad now? This was an ad that aired in a congressional race in Idaho a few years ago. which one? That Jeb Bush one or the simple Up at the top, next to the recycle bin. Bill Sally.
2: Here's what Republicans are saying about Bill Sally. He was incompetent in the legislature. In the campaign, he proved himself dishonest and deceitful, and he'd be an embarrassment to Idaho. He's an obstinate opportunist, an absolute idiot. He doesn't have one ounce of empathy in his whole freaking body, and he can put that in the paper. So if you're a Republican or independent, and you want to vote for Larry Grant, you're in good company. I'm Larry
0: Grant, and I approve this message.
3: So uh, a bit beyond the the normal political attack ad you might see, um, I also wanted to find a couple from this presidential campaign. So let's watch the Chris Christie ad. Um, it's simple question. What do you list
2: as Marco Rubio's top accomplishment that made you decide to endorse him? There's a guy who's uh, been able to uh, uh, number one win uh, win win a, a tough election in Florida. Can you name uh, his his top accomplishment? My feeling on Marco is someone who has tremendous potential, tremendous gifts. I guess it's hard to say their accomplishments. I mean, what you, t- Can you name one thing that he's passed. And then Republicans have been a majority in, for one year and one month, of which, as you know, he was running for president primarily. Well, just <laughs> one. Just One that Marco achieved maybe a bill that he wrote.
6: Jeff Bush ran Florida. Donald Trump built a company. Marco Rubio finished the sentence. You can't point
2: to him and say, well, nothing got done, and therefore he has no accomplishments. So this is a bogus argument. All I'm asking is a simple question. (laughs) List one accomplishment that Marco Rubio has achieved in four years of the United States Senate. The bottom line is, there, there isn't a whole lot of accomplishments, Joe, and I just
3: don't think it's a fair question. I'm Chris Christie, and I approve this message. All right, one more from Jeb Bush.
4: Just one other thing
1: I gotta get this off my chest. Donald Trump is a jerk. Donald Trump <laughs> facing new
3: criticism for something he did
1: on
2: the campaign trail last night in South Carolina. He appeared to mock a reporter with a disability. Okay, you gotta see this guy. Oh, uh, I don't know what I said. Ah, uh, I don't remember. I have a twelve year old son who's handicapped. He has the falls in Canada. That just made me so angry. And I told my wife I just couldn't let that stand. I had to do something. Make sure Donald Trump wasn't the nominee for the Republican
4: Party. I believe life is precious. I think life is truly a gift from God,
3: and we're all equal under God's watchful eye. That's what I believe. And when anybody, anybody disparages people with disabilities, it sets me off. That's why I call them a jerk. What kind of person would you want to have in the presidency that does that? At what point do we say, enough of this? Let's start solving problems. I'm Jeff Bush, and I approve this message. All right, so the important point here is that disagreement with an, op- an opponent about a policy issue is not incivility, and that's mostly what we see in political ads. So what is incivility? Um, a lot of people think of it as kind of violating the norms of standard political practice, the norms of what we do in a political situation. And so... Um, as long as you're talking about an opponent and it seems to be something relevant to the job, then most people are okay with that. So why did these ads potentially cross the line? Well, we know that when um, people start talking about your religion, people get angry. They don't like that. When they start talking about your family or, or your kids, in the case of the NRA ad, um, that makes people angry. They don't like that. Uh, When we start using language, like we saw in a couple of the ads, that makes people angry. And so I think that's when we cross the line from normal political disagreement, which there's a lot of, and I think is perfectly acceptable, to the point where we're incivil. And so why do we think there's more incivility than there actually is, though? Um, My answer is... The major answer is the news media. So when Donald Trump sends that tweet, uh, you know, calls Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, for example, um, that gets a lot of attention from the news media, doesn't it? And any of these instances, any of these political ads, um, the Elizabeth Dole ad got a lot of media attention. And so violating these norms gets us a lot of media coverage, but we also need to keep in mind, as my colleague said, incivility is not something new, and I also think it's less common than we may think. So I'll leave it there.
1: A couple questions about that. Um, Does it matter whether or not what is, if it's true, can it be uncivil? I mean, I don't know if you tied up that woman and made her worship to
3: Aqua Buddha but it might mm-hmm. go to character mm-hmm.
1: if it's true it's such a crazy claim
3: well in that instance it might be a true claim but I think most people would say why does that matter for politics How did it, why does that matter for running the country now maybe some people would say yes that matters for character but what's the relevance for um, being the best senator for Kentucky
1: and to the Santorum ad where Santorum really can't find anything nice to say about Marco Rubio, that's one of his supporters not being able to find any accomplishment that he can mention in an ad, and I'm sure that, that, was, that clip was edited quite a bit. But what do you find uncivil about that?
3: I think what's uncivil about it is, I think part of it was, was the tone. Part of it was the music that was used. It was very comical music. Um, part of it um, probably was... Um, just the selective editing of that ad and part of it was maybe maybe you don't think that ad was very uncivil some people would look at that and say actually it's not
1: and also we should also point out that those ads obviously didn't work for most of those candidates because they lost
3: that is true yes
1: you're going to jump in there cornell
2: well i gonna say you know uh, things can be true and and still be said in uncivil ways if you think about incivility as simply a violation of, of current customs, norms, conventions of behavior, um, it, it is not the case, certainly, that being uncivil is necessarily undemocratic. And I think a lot of people get this confused. In fact, oftentimes we think about acts of incivility as not only not being undemocratic, but actually advancing democracy. So, so think about the first the original Tea Party. The original Tea Party was certainly an act of incivility and yet we think of it as advancing democratic causes. If you think about the women's suffragettes, they were considered uncivil merely for speaking out publicly about politics at a time when women were not supposed to speak publicly about politics. And yet we think of that as advancing their claims for full democratic inclusion. If you think about the modern civil rights movement, when uh, black athletes raised their fists at the Olympics, or you think about violating the norms of southern society, violating laws, sitting in at lunch counters that were supposed to be segregated. That was... uncivil behavior. It was violating the norms, customs, and laws that govern our ordinary behavior. But oftentimes, especially people who lack power, the only way they can press claims for democratic inclusion is to be uncivil, is to violate customs, norms, and conventions of behavior because that's what the status quo is. That's what they're challenging. So it is not the case. There are certainly some forms of incivility that are undemocratic. Forms of incivility that seek to exclude people, forms of incivility that seek to intimidate them, acts of violence, all those are anti-democratic. But it's not the case that being uncivil is the same thing as being undemocratic. So I think that's an important distinction.
1: Travis, I want to ask you the same question I asked Cornell about whether it's the public's rising incivility that's driving the politician's rhetoric, or is it the other way around?
3: I think an argument could be made that it's the the public's hate of the other political party is having an impact on how the politicians behave. I think we see that in a lot of primary races where, you know, if you don't give us the red meat that we want, if you dare shake hands with Barack Obama or someone on the Republican side, then we're going to run someone against you in the primary. And so those... Politicians who might have a reputation for working with the other side um, can sometimes face electoral trouble when they do. And so that's the way in which um, incivility or at least polarization among the public could affect the behavior of politicians.
1: Cornell, looking at history, do we see periods where we got very polarized and very uncivil but then came back from that?
2: And what happened to change the... the Oh, yeah, yeah, of um, course. Is Zaki, do you have my other slides up there? In fact, uh, well, you know, all these previous periods I talked about, the, eight, the, you know, the 1820s, the 1860s, um, you know, actually, let's see. It's probably <laughs> I have to go through all these. Um, all these were periods where you had deep division and deep incivility in our politics, but uh, uh, eventually we we did come back from that. What I want to show you right now is I think the period that's most like what we have today was the 1880s and 1890s. This was a period that uh, political historians call the period of no decision. It's because our elections were very closely divided then. Control of Congress and the presidency vacillated back and forth between the two parties. It's the last time you had presidents who, elected, who were, uh, won the electoral college without winning the popular vote was during this period. So if you see that same pattern of institutional instability... I think um, it's not surprising that the issues that divide us today are strikingly similar to the issues that divided us then. Both periods are marked by major major economic transformations. Back then it was the nationalization of the economy. Today it's the globalization of the economy. Both periods were marked by rising economic inequality. That was the original Gilded Age. Today we're the new Gilded Age. Wealth and income is more polarized than any time since the 1890s. Both periods marked by massive immigration and massive demographic changes. We have more foreign-born Americans today than any time since the 1890s. Both periods you had real changes in the way we run our campaigns and our elections and the rise of populism. Back then it was the original populist movement, the original People's Party and Populist Party, William Jennings Bryant. Today we have populists on the left like Bernie Sanders. We have populists on the right like uh, Donald Trump. Uh, So this new form of populism. Uh, So Strikingly similar things going on back then as we see today.
1: And then how did we come out of that polarization? Did these different issues begin to resolve themselves? Did economic inequality become less pronounced? Was there less immigration and demographic change? How did we back out of that polarization?
2: Well, when people ask you, how does this end? (laughs) If I had a crystal ball, I could tell you. But what I know from history is this. The way this ends is one party become so extreme or so divided that they are no longer able to elect members? Parties exist for one reason. It's to get their members elected. And if a party becomes so extreme in its view or so divided in its view, it can no longer elect members, that party ceases to exist. It's replaced by a new party, like the Whigs went away and the Republican Party replaced it. Or that party transforms itself and moves back to the center. So the Democratic Party went through a major transformation in the 1930s under Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, the Republican Party went through a major transformation after they nominated uh, you know, Barry Goldwater in 1964. It moved back to the center. We don't think about Nixon as a centerist candidate, but he was a centerist candidate. The Democratic Party went through another major transformation in the 1990s. It moved back from the left, uh, a, a party that was controlled basically by the Ken, Ken, Ted Kennedy wing of the party. And the whole point of, of uh, Bill Clinton in the Democratic Leadership uh, Council, was to bring the party back to the middle, and, and they triangulated, they moved back to the middle. That's what parties do. So that's how it ends. It ends when one party ceases to be competitive in national elections over a period of time.
1: You know, One of the reasons that I've seen expressed, and I'd like you to get your thoughts on this, Travis, is that the parties themselves are becoming less and less relevant, and they can't enforce party discipline. And insurgencies are basically awarded by the electorate. Politicians can go directly to the electorate and kind of bypass the party operation. Donald Trump, opposed by all the major party leaders and yet tremendously successful, he didn't really need the Republican leadership to do that. And to a lesser extent, Bernie Sanders kind of ran an insurgent campaign. So, by this theory, it's kind of the breakdown in parties that's leading to this incivility and polarization. What are your thoughts on that? No,
3: I think you're absolutely on the right track there. There have been a lot of changes in the past 20, 30 years to campaign finance laws that allow, allow an, an insurgent candidate to get elected without the help of the political party. Um, candidates can advance in Congress um, without paying their dues by serving the political party for years and years and years. Um, changes to the primary systems in the 1960s and 1970s have allowed for these, again, insurgent candidates who don't need the political party to get elected. So I I do think that's a major part of the story as well. Cornell, I
1: don't know if you agree with that or not, but is there any chance that the parties will become more ascendant and regain more of their power and lead to fewer insurgent campaigns and perhaps less
2: polarization? Uh, a return of the establishment. <laughs> the establishment will strike back. No, I, th- I think it is, it is inevitable uh, that you're going to see an effort uh, by both parties uh, to, to be able to at least control their nominating processes more than they're doing right now, especially on the Republican side. <laughs> and So I think that's, that's inevitable. Um, I mean, I, I, there's a striking paradox going on right now On the one hand, we talk about our parties being weak in the sense that they can't control their own membership, the elites, the elected elites. Uh, And you see this, you know, John Boehner can't get the votes he needs to pass bills that the leadership, the House leadership wants. Uh, But at the same time, we have stronger parties than we've had in over a generation. If you think about people voting straight tickets, it's at an all-time high, you know, People are strongly partisan in their views, and our partisan identities are driving our politics in ways that we haven't seen for a, a, you know, in a long period of time. So our parties are simultaneously very strong in terms of the identities they're helping us form, but they're weak in terms of how the elites can control uh, the elected, their own elected officials, if that makes sense.
1: Can our leaders reduce the level of incivility and polarization. When President Obama came into office, that was a theme that he struck and he appeared to be trying to work closely with Republicans and it didn't really work out that well for him. Then he was criticized for trying too hard to do that. Hillary Clinton is talking about how we get more done together as part of her campaign rhetoric. Can politicians lead us away from destructive polarization and incivility?
3: I I don't know. I think it has more to do with the structures, the institutions that are currently in place than the individuals who hold the positions of power. It's not as though we just got a particularly bad crop of politicians right now, um, a particularly uncivil lot. Um, I think it does have more to do with the institutions. That said, there are a a lot of groups out there, institute centers, whatever, workshops trying to address this problem and one thing they always talk about and try to implement is to to get these legislators to hang out with each other Um, if they meet each other's families if they uh, go to the same prayer breakfast if they play golf together then they might build those personal relationships and make it harder to hate the other guy make it more easy to work with the other side and so whether that's a real solution or just some, something fanciful that sounds good on paper, I'm not sure.
1: You mentioned the media uh, trumpeting and adding to, pouring gasoline on incivility. And we also should note that we've seen a major change in the structure of the media over the same time period, where mainstream media, we've got one newspaper in this town now, we used to have two. The strength of the television networks is breaking down. Legacy media is fading, other media is rising. Is that just a coincidence that you feel as though the media is fueling a lot of this incivility at the same time as its very structure is changing fundamentally?
3: No, I think the change in the structure is contributing to the incivility. Um, The major news organizations used to be the gatekeepers. They would decide what became news and what wasn't news, and now they're almost completely bypassed thanks to social media, thanks to online media organizations. And so their power to set the narrative um, has almost completely disappeared. Um, And also, I think speeding up of our news has also contributed to this. Um, You can send out a a highly incivil tweet right at this moment about me. And um, you don't have time to think about that for 24 hours and whether you really wanted to say that or not. And in 24 hours, that's going to be retweeted. It's going to be picked up by blogs, several major media websites. It's out there. The damage has been done. And so just this, the speeding up of communication has also contributed to this problem.
1: Cornell, I'd be curious about your thoughts on the role of media and contributing so, to this polarization. Yeah, I mean,
2: this is, and he's the expert, so listen to him on media. Um, But there is a lot of uh, conflicting data and research done on the role of media with respect to polarization, which is slightly different than with respect to incivility. I, I think Travis is absolutely right there. With respect to polarization, it's not clear whether media is driving polarization or reflecting polarization. And so, you know, we think about, well, you know, people who turn to watch Fox News, they become more polarized, And people who watch MSNBC become more polarized in the opposite direction, and and that may or may not be true, but here's the truth. So, Bill O'Reilly, which is the most popular show on Fox News, that was their average viewership uh, back. This was back in November of 2013, about a million and a half viewers a night. Rachel Maddow show, the most popular show on MSNBC, about a million viewers. Look at Wheel of Fortune, 12 million viewers. The Blacklist, 11 million viewers, Two Broke Girls, 8 million viewers. People who tune into polarized media are already highly polarized. That's why they're going there. You know, I I might go home and watch the political shows, but, you know, most people don't do that. They go home and they watch Wheel of Fortune. So the idea that somehow this is driving more polarized attitudes is is not entirely accurate. It's, it's more reflecting the attitudes that are already polarized, although certainly there's an echo chamber effect. You know, people, they watch media that reflects the views they already hold, and that might reinforce those views. But I doubt that it's probably be driving them.
1: I want to get to your questions and comments in a moment, but just a final question for our panelists. Uh, seems like many of you felt a revulsion towards the incivility and the polarization that we've seen. Um, What could could individuals as citizens do about this, if anything? Or are these forces beyond our control? Do we sit as bystanders and watch the polarization and and civility increase and increase and increase?
3: Yeah, this was the question on your list of questions that I didn't have a good answer to. Um, I'm not sure what we can do as individuals. Um, You know, as groups, we could... You know, elect one political party and pummel the other political party until it, you know, changes its ways. Um, You know, I can say some Pollyanna-type things about well, let's let's model good behavior for the politicians and not reward the bad ones. But in terms of real-world practical solutions, I'm I'm hoping Cornell can be helpful. (laughs) Thanks.
2: Well, again, I, I want to distinguish between incivility and polarization. Um, look, I, I think we should worry less about incivility. Uh, people being rude, people being passionate, people getting angry in our politics. I think that is the, that is the normal byproduct of democratic conflict. When you have deep divisions in a society, people are going to get passionate about those. That is democratic politics, that's fine now I think we should get concerned when that incivility becomes undemocratic in nature so when it turns to acts of violence, when it turns to threats and intimidation when it turns to trying to delegitimize the other side because we disagree with their views, it can't be simply because I disagree with you, you become un-American or you're not a legitimate president because I don't like your policies uh, and we attack the legitimacy of the other side. That strikes at the very heart of democratic citizenship, this idea that we are, all have an equal right to full participation in our democratic politics and to hold our views even when we disagree. Uh, so there are certain types of acts. I, I would put in some other acts of incivility that threaten democracy. For instance, purposeful lying in politics, purposely mis- uh, you know, mischaracterizing the other side's views for short term political gain I think it's both uncivil and it's undemocratic because it keeps us from dem- to debating what really divides us as a, as a democratic polity I think we'd be better off spending more time thinking about the issues that really do divide us than we do about the style of discourse we have it's my own view
1: okay your turn there's a microphone right down here do you have a question or a comment for our panelists step right up so we can hear what you have to say Uh, Just tell me your name first and what's your question or comment.
4: Sure, my name is Ebert. And um, it's a comment. Um, I would say it's a cautionary tale of um, how people support certain policies. I'm a direct product of the Reagan administration. I don't know if you guys remember Iran Contra. Uh, I'm a refugee from Nicaragua who eventually uh, became a citizen Um, so when people talk about politics and support a candidate they don't consider the ramifications of uh, that support and I can tell you from personal experience that uh, I had to uh, leave Nicaragua at 14 uh, after watching my friend's come back in coffins and be removed from high school from my classroom to go be trained to fight in a war. I had no interest in fighting. So I eventually came here and it took me about 10 years to become a citizen. Um, so that's only one slice of what policies and uh, different politics in this country do outside and you know I, I would dare say internally as yeah. well. So well, that's my only comment.: As someone coming from
1: Nicaragua, you can certainly talk about political polarization yeah. within your country. Yeah,:
4: Absolutely. Yeah. And um, you know I, 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 I still uh, kind of follow that, and I, I get very angry about the politics over there too, as well as here. Yeah. so thank you very much. Thank you.: Do we have another question or a
1: comment?? As microphones right up here. You could just line up in this row right here. Yes. What's your name?
6: Hi, my name is Mary. I'm from Ana and um, well, that's a great comment. Uh, my question has to do with two things that I don't think either of you have addressed. And one is gerrymandering and the district redistricting, and then also um, limitations on voter registration. How does that impact the polarization and ongoing division? Thank
2: you. So, um, you know, there's no question that gerrymandering has some impact in the House of Representatives. And uh, some of the incivility and the polarization and the, and the uh, policy stalemate you see there is probably because there's these gerrymandered districts. It's not what's driving polarization. It has, if it has an impact, it's a marginal impact. How do I know that? Whoop. Well, somehow, I... Pushed the wrong button. I pushed the. I, how do I know that? Is if you look at the Senate, it is just as polarized as the, as the House. In fact, in the Senate, districts haven't changed. Right. So we so we know gerrymandering is not the major problem. It, I mean, there is some impact in terms of our House races, but the Senate's just as polarized. Um. I, sorry. What was the other the other part of your question? Oh yeah now again when I went back to that slide showing the 1890s and the politics of the 1890s the first time we had voter registration laws in this country was in the 1890s part of the 1890s we we had uh, voter turnout rate and right, during the ni- 1890s in fact our uh, turnout rate in presidential elections was 90% much like in every other western democracy between 1890s and 1920 our voter turnout rate fell from 90% down to 50% and it's never really recovered since then and what caused that was voter registration laws, which were put on books for the first time in the 1890s. So we know exactly why they were put on the books in the 1890s. In the South, you had things like literacy exams, poll taxes. You had to pay, pass these or pay them before you could register to vote. Uh, they were used to keep African Americans from voting in the South. They always had grandfather clauses embedded in those laws that said if your grandfather could vote without passing the literacy exam or paying the poll tax, you didn't have to. So all whites could vote, but all blacks couldn't. We had literacy exams imposed for registration of voting in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia County up until the the 1950s. So it was happening in the North, too. Why Pittsburgh and Philadelphia County? They were aimed at working-class immigrants who were coming into our country around the turn of the century. They were weeding them out as undesirable voters. So um, there's no question that during these periods of deep, deep polarization, close division in our politics... Both parties seek advantage by trying to prevent the supporters of the other party from voting. And is it going to have an impact? I think we'll see in this election what the impact will be of some of these new voter registration laws, which I, I think have a clear intent and purpose for the most part, is my own view.
1: Any other questions? All right, uh, if you're about to come up, come on up. How you doing? What's your name?
6: My name's Max.
1: I live just on the other... Well, around Greenlake Roosevelt, An aspect that hasn't been discussed very much that I think is pivotal here is money in politics. Jimmy Carter pointed out in the last several elections that the United States elections do not qualify as free and fair elections by an international standard. Jimmy Carter also pointed out that the United States is effectively not a democracy we are a plutocracy so much but, for any kind of equal representation or speaking of so of that's course. a great question we haven't really talked about money in politics which has changed vastly in recent years do you think that that lends itself to more incivility and or polarization either of you
3: yeah i i think it may because in the in the past like i talked about the the political parties were quite powerful and know they had a lot of favors to give. They could give a lot of electoral help to members of their political parties. And then when it came time to vote on particular legislation, uh, those members went along with the party line. Um, and so a lot more was getting done in Congress. Uh, nowadays, it seems like um, interest groups, outside groups, have much more money entering the political system um, in many ways, they're more powerful than the political parties when it comes to running out all those ads that we see on television, and oftentimes those are groups with particular points of view, which can help to, and you know, help polarize those members of Congress as well. And so instead of looking for kind of those solutions, um, you know, they're worried about you know what ad is going to be run against them in the next race. So I think that is definitely a factor. You
1: know, we've been talking for an hour now, and I got to just bring out the elephant in the room. To what degree has Donald Trump added to incivility and polarization in American politics, if at all?
3: <laughs>
2: well, I'm not sure. Is the question is Donald Trump uncivil? I I think he is uncivil. Uh, He definitely violates norms, customs, and conventions of normal political behavior. Um, You know, is is he the first to do this? No, Um, uh, and I think he's reflecting again the deep divisions in our society right now, and in particular in the Republican Party. It's a deeply divided party, which is why uh, a candidate like. Donald Trump could take advantage of it um, and become their nominee. I, I don't think you could have seen Trump rise to the status of a, a, a nominee of a major party unless the party was deeply, deeply divided. So, I mean, I think he's, uh, he's a symptom, not a cause, of our incivilities. Travis?
3: No, I would, I would agree. Um, you know, in terms of violating norms, he's right up there. Um... You know, we haven't seen a presidential candidate like this in, in quite some time, in terms of the the regularity with which he violates the norms of politics. Um, you know, it, but again, I think he's more a symptom of our political system right now than than a cause of it.
1: Sir, did you have a question or comment? Kind of step right up. What's your name?
5: Um, my name is Amos, um, and I live in Bellevue. Um, but I had, a, I had a quick question, so, uh,
1: do I get close to
5: my, okay, yeah. there we go. Um, so, um, what they showed in this this last primary was that states that primarily uh, allowed independents to vote in their primary, typically in the, particularly in the Republican primary, went to Trump. States with closed primaries either went to Cruz, over mostly, mostly. Um, uh, in a, or Rubio in, in the states Minnesota and um, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico and then uh, Kasich in Ohio, um, but states that allowed independents to vote overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump. Um, I mean, do you think do you think that political parties to prevent this in the future will try to work on closed primary um, legislation in states to prevent something like this from happening, or do you think that's just not you know?
1: How about that, the rules by which these candidates get chosen? What kind of a factor is that?
3: No, I, I think that's a good point. And I think the Republican Party, right after this fall's election, if Donald Trump loses, is going to be looking at rewriting the rules. Um, you know, it's, you know they, they may institute something like superdelegates, like the Democrats have. But this is not, again, something new. After every election, they rewrite the rules to try to fix the problems. Um, that they perceived with the previous election, and so uh, part of the reason Donald Trump did so well was they rewrote the rules to, um, you know, try to get an earlier nominee in 2016. It didn't and quite so work in some out the ways, way they hoped it would. Yeah, the party facilitated it.
2: We just say, you know, the, the any effort to to move towards closed primaries is going to run against a stiff headwind because the populism on both the left and the right is diametrically opposed to that. The populism on both the left and the right, they want more open primaries. They want less party control of the nominating process. You know, So when you listen to the rhetoric of, of someone like a Donald Trump or um, someone like a Bernie Sanders, that's what they're opposed to. And they have energized the base of both parties, and so it's going to be very, very difficult for... Uh, people of the establishment, if you want to call them that, of the established parties to try to close that off. Yes, sir. What's your name and what's your question? Hi. Hi, my name's Ted. Um, I have a question question about the urban-rural divide. Can you come out on the history of that? I mean, basically the Republican Party is a rural party and the Democratic Party is an urban party. If you look at any map,
4: the red <clears throat> the red states are vast, and the blue areas are smaller. concentrated in cities. closer to the mic, sir? Closer to the mic. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay.
2: And, oh, so you have the map there. But it's even reflected in this state where the, the rural parts of the state, eastern Washington, are staunchly Republican. If I may
1: paraphrase, so the question is, we see Republicans strong in rural areas, Democrats strong in cities, and what, what kind of factor is that in all right. this? And in yeah. the
4: history of that, has that historically been the case as well?
2: No, uh, and again, go, I'll go back to the 1890s, a good example. The populist movement back then, the People's Party and William Jennings Bryan uh, candidacy, the, Demo- the fusion party between the, the, the populist party and the Democratic Party, it was uh, supported by a coalition of rural farmers, poor farmers, and uh, urban workers. And uh, it was, you know, it was at that time, we had this real, truly sort of uh, uh, populist-style uh, trans-class, uh, trans-rural, uh, urban divide. Um, and, you know, if you look at Franklin Roosevelt's support, much, much of it came from r- rural areas. Uh, in fact, most of it came from rural areas. You know, the reason we have this idea that there's a red and blue America is because of these maps we see every four years at the Electoral College. But if you, if you break down that data, so this is the 2012 Electoral College map, with the data broken down to the county level rather than the state level. And it has uh, blue counties are where Barack Obama won by 5 percentage points or more. Red counties is where uh, Mitt Romney won by 5 percentage points or more. The purple, and you probably can't see with these lights, but most of it's purple up there, is where the margin was within 5 percentage points. And, in fact, if you control for population, this is what the map would look like. There are pockets of deep blue and pockets of deep red but much of the country, if not most of it, is purple. So we're not so geographically divided as this red and blue America meme sometimes makes, makes us out to be or suggests we are. I mean, there certainly is something to uh, lifestyle sorting that's taking place. People with certain attitudes who want to live in urban areas tend to have more liberal political views, and people who live in rural areas tend to have more conservative views. But it's not as, as uh, red and blue as, our, as some of our pundits might make us think.
3: And I'll just follow up a little bit on that lifestyle sorting. I think it is the case, though, that we're increasingly maybe having contact or less contact with people on the other side Um, because we are choosing to live in particular neighborhoods where 90% of our neighbors share our political views or attending clubs or organizations or hanging out wherever we hang out with people who are increasingly like us. Um, the workplace is about the only place nowadays where we're we're actually exposed to kind of that cross-cutting political talk where we're talking to Democrats and Republicans.
1: Yes, sir, what's your name and what's your question? My name is Ken, and a quick question for both of you. Uh, is there a correlation between the depth of discourse, both in the media and through history, and polarization, so to the extent that the media has reduced things to sound bites and uh, our debates have been reduced to these 2-minute questions and answers does that change things into a binary of polarization as opposed to nuance of deep discussion
3: yeah good question and i'm not sure i i have an answer in terms of the historical part of it um i do think that you know as we've talked about as and the media environment has changed over the past 20 years we're increasingly going to websites to get our news or news organizations to get our news that you know that we agree with and so you can go to your left-wing blog and read the comments of all your left-wing friends on facebook and you're not being exposed to that other site so i think that's The recent development that may be helping this affective polarization, this just that we don't like the other side, and we certainly don't want our kids to marry someone of the other political party. Um, Lots of survey data on that. Um, And that has increased. We used to be okay if our kids would marry someone of the other party. We're not anymore.
2: That's because... You know, if you if you're a Democrat and your son or daughter came home and said, "I'm going to marry a Republican," you didn't know if it was a conservative Republican or a Rockefeller Republican, and vice versa on the Democratic side. But now that we're sorted, you know what that person's like, and you know you don't like their views, (laughs) so that's why you don't want them marrying somebody of the other party. Um, I'm not sure that you know part of the part of what happens here. So, so I take you know take the example of. our attitudes about, uh, let's see, Take our attitudes about global warming. So, you know, is there, is there scientific evidence of global warming? So what's the answer to that? Well, the answer to that is, I don't know, science. <laughs> so, so first of all, how many of us think of ourselves uh, as educated enough to read authoritative studies on global warming, and have done that. I haven't. So, the vast, vast majority of Americans have not So how do they make a decision about global warming? You know, whether there's scientific evidence has nothing to do with my identity. It doesn't matter whether I'm black or white, male or female, rich, poor, Protestant, Catholic, atheist. So why does it matter whether I'm a Democrat or a Republican? Americans, we we think we make our political choices the way we make choices about, you know, solve math problems. You sit down, you calculate, you look at all the alternatives, and you gather the evidence, and then you make a decision. That's not how we make political decisions. We make political decisions in very emotive ways, based upon our emotional identities. We trust people on our team. If people on our team tell us there's global warming, we think there is. And if people on our team say it's a hoax, we think it's a hoax. Because most of us can't spend the time, nor would we, to go out and read this and study this topic for ourselves. So I'm not sure that, um, at the elite level at least, the, level, the depth of the discourse has an impact on how in, you know, the masses, the mass public, makes political choices and decisions. This is much more an identity-style politics, and it always has been to some extent in the United States, much more so than in, in some other democracies. Please, rise up. What's your name? What's your question?
6: Hi, I'm Gabby. Um, okay, so addressing the big gap that is currently happening between the Republican and Democratic Party and judging on what you just said, where you want to stick with your team, um, I feel that going back to Trump, he's kind of banking on that, whereas he understands that he's a leading Republican and he's going to bank on everyone, trusting that he's part of the team, and so he is going to lead the Republican debate, even though he is so strictly not exactly the ideal, proper, normal, kind, any kind of normal, good candidate. He's kind of his own team. Basically. um, When he loses, or hopefully when he loses, do you think that will make the Republican Party take it as a maybe we should try and bond that back to when we were used to be kind of more intermingled with the De- Democratic Party and the Republican or do you think they will strive further into liberating more the Republican further away from bonding? Right, <laughs> so,
3: so what is the future of the Republican Party if Donald Trump loses and loses dramatically in November? Is that sort of your question?
6: Yeah, just do you think that as him banking on the fact that Republicans will hold as a whole, as a team, even though his ideals are wrong, do you think after realizing his loss and his ideals lost, maybe will they try and recollect and try and reform their ideas and try and maybe mingle back to cohering with the other party, or will they still stick firm and try and wave away? Is my question.
3: I, I think there'll definitely be some you know, reflection on the part of the Republican Party if Trump loses. Um, and we do know that political parties are, are actually quite, quite nimble in the United States when there's a threat from someone like Ross Perot. Uh, in the 1990s, the political parties, in the past at least, have responded to that. have tried to usurp those ideas, to try to appeal to those particular um, groups of the public who are dissatisfied. And so it may be a new coalition, but um, no doubt there will be attempts made to try to build that new coalition so that there's a majority and they can win elections, because that's what parties are about.
2: Let me try to be a little more focused on the Republican Party in the sense that, look, the Republican Party is, was deeply divided before Trump came onto the scene, and it will be deeply divided after Trump. Um, the real problem is their coalition, which was put together in the 1970s and 1980s, um, has groups that are ideologically incompatible with each other right now. And that's a civil war going on in the Republican Party. And that's why Donald Trump, who was, was not a conservative and not a Republican, <laughs> historically, was able to come in and take advantage of that and become the party's nominee because the party couldn't coalesce around either of the warring factions, so that's going to play itself out. Even after if Donald Trump gets defeated in landslide, the the conservative wing of the party, the Ted Cruz wing, if you want to put it in that uh, way, will say we got defeated because we didn't nominate a real conservative. And the establishment wing of the party, the Chamber of Commerce wing of the Republican Party, is going to say. We got beat because we didn't nominate a, you know, a traditional, middle-of-the-road Republican. That's where we need to move. And you're going to see that debate play itself out should Donald Trump lose. Now, if Donald Trump wins, it's an entirely different debate. Then uh, then who knows where that party goes. It goes in a very different direction, it seems to me.
1: Thank you. Did we had another question. Step up to the... Okay. Yes, ma'am. What's your name?
2: Hi there. I'm Linda. Hi, Linda. And I think the elephant in the room is the racial dynamics and the polarization on race and that the political parties and their positions on the situations that are arising currently is is paramount to
4: understanding the differences between where the parties lie and how they uh, address that.
1: Well, there's certainly a divide in race when it comes to the polls in the
2: presidential election. What are your comments on that? Absolutely. So if you look at... This was the demographics of the last election. If you look at Romney supporters, 88% were white, less than 12% were people of color. If you look at Obama supporters, 56% were white, 44% were people of color. So we have parties that have not only become ideologically sorted, we have parties that have increasingly become ethnically and racially sorted as well. And uh, that's uh, underlying some of the racial tensions you're seeing right now around the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the white police officers and what's going on right now in our country. That's overlaying this partisan divide as well. So it definitely plays into it. And we know race is a huge, huge factor in American politics. It always has been. Uh, it was the realignment of the South away from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party that led originally to the Reagan Revolution, to the Reagan-style Republican parties when that when the South broke away. So it is. It's, you're absolutely right. It's a huge, and important part of the puzzle.
1: I think this woman was what we were waiting. No, go ahead. What's your name? Uh, Matt. Matt. Um, yes. And I have the same question actually
5: about. Um, race and sort of the reckoning of, uh, with race politics and queer politics and whether or not, in addition to sort of sorting people, uh, into different parties, uh, if you also think that it's going to create divisions in the party, uh, in each individual party as, as they deal with, um, reckoning with race politics.
3: Well, I, I think we're already seeing those divisions in the political parties, um, and it, it, particularly within the Republican Party over issues of immigration, which tie into issues of race, right? Um, uh, most people in Congress um, agree on you know, a path forward for immigration, but they can't get the votes for it, in part because of those divisions within the Republican Party and the need to appeal to... Um, and it was a certain brand of voters within the Republican Party. So I I think it's already there, definitely.
1: Yes, what's your name?
4: Hi, I'm Sandy. We live in a state where we don't register in a party, and friends of mine that come from other parts of the country are always baffled by this. I grew up here, so it doesn't seem unusual to me. There are a lot of um, things you can run for that don't require you to declare a party, although we got our um, voters pamphlet today and a lot of people prefer one or prefer the other in the same way that you might prefer Coke or Pepsi. I'm wondering if this has any, um, if this is reflected in any way in the larger picture that you've been talking to us about tonight. It seems to me that I think slightly less about being a Democrat or being a Republican than um, my friends and colleagues in other parts of the country do. Is this just a polite fiction, or is there actually some fact to this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good, another slide. Yeah. So,
2: so, you know, we have this myth in America that uh, independents are taking over, that we're becoming less partisan. Fewer of us are identifying as Democrats and Republicans, and more are identifying as, as independents. So if you simply ask, are you a Democrat, a Republican, or an Independent, this is the data from 1988 through 2012, and you'll see that those who call themselves Independents now outnumber Democrats and Republicans, right? This is a myth. There was a great book written a few years back called The Myth of the Independent Voter. So if you ask this question uh, in, a more comp- in a more sophisticated way, if you ask, are you a Democrat, an independent leaning Democrat, an independent, an independent leaning Republican, or a Republican, you get a very, very different set of answers. So, here are strong party identifiers people who call themselves either strongly Republican or strongly uh, Democratic. And you'll see that's about, it, it, is, it is still about 35%. It's the biggest group of Americans. People who call themselves Independent, leaning, or weak partisans, weak Democrats, weak Republicans, independent-leaning Republicans or Democrats, they make up about 30% each as well. Pure independents, around 10%. Now, here's the question. How do these independent leaners and weak partisans vote? Do they vote just like strong independents? So, do you vote for the, the candidate of your party? Here's the strong partisans. 90% 90% of the time, they vote for the candidate of their party. Here are the independent leaners and the weak partisans. 75 to 80% of the time, they vote for the candidate of their party they lean to. They behave substantially like regular partisans. So, you know, there's this... We all like to think of ourselves as independent. None of us like to think of ourselves as party hacks. Oh, yeah, I'm independent. I make up my mind all the time. But our partisan identities are so powerful... They shape the way we uh, absorb information, the way we analyze information, and then the way we vote. And that's what this really tells us. Even if we call ourselves independents, we in fact behave like partisans most of the time. Does that make sense? What's your name?
5: I I went up again. I'm growing up again. I'm Amos again. uh, Amos again. Still Amos. (laughs) Still Amos. Still Amos. Uh, Still live in Bellevue. Um, And (laughs) so... Um, My question was uh, in a a way related to this. um, So I was a a pretty staunch John Kasich supporter and when he dropped out, I got very confused about where do I go, do I go with my party, which was going down a cliff very quickly, or um, do I try to suck it up and vote for Hillary, which is hard for me to do, and a lot of Democrats also hard uh, to do. And there's now, um, you know, they're starting to include a lot more um, in, in national polls with Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, Um, Gary Johnson, I think, being more and more, you know, appealing candidate to people who were kind of deflecting from the Republican Party being a two-term governor and having a two-term governor on his ticket. Do you think um, with the kind of delusion a lot of people are having with both political parties this year, and especially uh, the allegiance to candidates that dropped out, um, as we go into the general election and it gets more heated between the two of them, there's... An opening, obviously, not for someone to win, but um, for a possibility on a debate stage or or really a possibility to um, kind of open this whole new dialogue to someone like Gary Johnson or someone like Jill
3: Stein.
1: Yeah, or could that influence the outcome?
3: Right. I I suspect that third-party candidates won't have much success in this race. Part of that is just due to our strong attachments to the political parties. Um, Your political party could nominate the worst candidate in the world, and yet 70 or 80 percent of the identifiers with that political party will vote for that worst person in the world anyway. Um, That's part of the story. The other part of the story is that the news media just aren't going to give Jill Stein or Gary Johnson enough media coverage that most Americans are going to hear about these individuals. And the political parties are going to work like hell to make sure that they aren't on the debate stage so that they aren't getting that media attention. So I I have no doubt they'll get a few percentage points and maybe more than um, in 2008 or 2012, but I don't see them as real... Game changers in 2016.
1: Travis Ridout, Cornell Clayton, thank you so much. It was great.
0: Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 949 Seattle. WSU professors Cornell Clayton and Travis Ridout joined KUOW's Ross Reynolds in this Humanities Washington Think and Drink discussion at Naked City Brewery on July 12th. Thank you again to Zeki Barak Hamid for our recording. Tune in again soon.